Thank you, worship team. That's good stuff. <laughs> I have some good voices behind me. I some, just sometimes just close my mouth and listen. Nice job, Gallagher's. I like that. <laughs> if you turn to Genesis chapter 15, as some have called this perhaps one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, it certainly is a significant chapter. As we continue to follow Abraham and his life and his journey, and uh, it's been my prayer and I trust yours as well that as we've gone through this journey with Abraham, we're looking at our journey with God, our relationship, some of the ups, some of the downs, some of the victories, um, some of those confusing times Abraham went through, I think we can relate to those as well. And so as I read through this chapter, we're going to pray, but there, there's a lot of significant things that come out of here that I hope that we'll hear what God has to say. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. But one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He took him outside. He said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he, being Abraham, said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation that you shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. They came about that when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, for, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanite, and the Canaanite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, face to face with a passage which there's just so much here. It's my prayer that we come not so much as scholars looking to learn, add to our knowledge, but God, once again, we would journey with Abraham, his conversation, 
Lord, would become our conversation with you. Lord, as we look at his fears and we look at all the uncertainty he faced, help us to face our fears and the uncertainties we have. And like Abraham, God, might we see your hand upon our life. Lord, might we respond to the ways you call us to this morning. We're going to give you the praise, God, for the way you speak and for the way you continue to change us through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hundreds of years later after this was written, some of the New Testament writers will look back, especially Paul in Galatians 3 and Peter in Acts 3, on the covenant here made as a foundation of the gospel. So indeed, this is a significant chapter. We discover some important firsts in this chapter. I hadn't realized it until I read through it a little bit more. There's some firsts in this chapter in the Bible. This is the first use of the phrase, the word of the Lord came. We read in Genesis 15. We hadn't read that up to this point. This phrase goes on to be used over 100 times in the Old Testament. This is the first time God said to anybody, fear not is significant when we read it. It's the first time God is called a shield, which will be reported multiple times in the book of Psalms, referring to God as our protection. So there's some significant firsts here that kind of play an important role as we go through this chapter. I, uh, and Cindy, celebrate our anniversary recently. That's always fun, isn't it? Look back, and you, you look back with gratitude and and you look back soberly and say, all those years weren't always easy. But we celebrate God's faithfulness. And I celebrate the fact that Sydney's different from a mere acquaintance. How? Well, we know each other so well. We're comfortable with one another, free to be ourselves, all the warts included. We're free to talk about those personal heart issues that we probably wouldn't with anybody else. We share a bond of trust, which is deep and rich. We confide in one another. We value one another's opinions. And because we're committed to each other, we give each other priority. And I know Cindy in several ways. She's my beloved. She's my helper. She's my lover. And she's my friend. Think about that. Your spouse is your friend. It takes on a new meaning. And, and, and because she's my friend, it doesn't mean she's not these other things. It just means we have a depth and an intimacy in our relationship, which is very significant. I'm not sure of many more treasures more valuable than my friend, Cindy. Now think about this chapter. Of all the billions of people God created... And of all those he's caused to serve him in some special ways, he referred to Abram as my friend. Think about that. That's pretty significant. We don't read that often. He said, Abram, in the Isaiah passage I read before the service, you're my friend. That denotes a special, intimate relationship. And all these factors define friendship with another person. And all these factors that define friendship we see present in Abram's relationship with God. Abram's knowledge of God grew more intimate with each encounter. 
as I pray ours does. And it deeper with each test of his faith. And as they conversed, Abram's bond of trust strengthened, especially in regard to the see what we confided, what he confided to God, and how honest and vulnerable he was with God. Genesis 15 records what Bible scholars call an interchange. And, and what they mean by that is in verse 1, we hear the Lord speak. And then we get a glimpse of verse 2 and 3, Abraham speaks. And we go to verse 4 and 5, God speaks. And, and then verse 6, it comes back to Abram. And then verse 7, the Lord speaks again. And then verse 8, Abram speaks again. And verse 9 through 21, God takes it from there. It's unique. You don't, we don't see that in the Bible a lot, that type of interchange. It's almost like God's letting us eavesdrop on this conversation, which was very personal. And I think what God wanted you and I as we eavesdrop, so to speak, on this chapter is for us to think about our relationship with him. What does it look like? And, and is it, do we see some of them factors in Abraham's relationship with God in our relationship? The first thing we see, verses 1 through 8, is really a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. This direct interchange between God and individuals, again, didn't occur a lot like this. We don't read it like this so much in Scripture. But in this case, Abram's interchange takes the form of a true dialogue. It's a, it's a back-and-forth conversation between friends. But make no mistake, while the two shared this incredible free exchange, God didn't become Abram's buddy-buddy. Remember up to this point, several times Abram's made an altar to worship. Just because he had this unique dialogue with God, in a sense of a friend, God didn't quit being these other things. He's the one true God. Abram revered him and worshipped him. But he was able to enter into this exchange with God as two friends talking. Abram never lost sight of the Lord's awesome, holy omnipotence. And we saw that again as he built altars to worship God. Now verse 1 starts out with after these things, and we need to ask the question as we read through what things. What's he talking about? It indicates what happens next, and it's linked to the previous events we talked about last week. Mainly, Abram's victory over the coalition army of Cato-Loamer. Now, if we were to really think through this, because sometimes we kind of read over these and we forget and maybe think they're kind of like Marvel characters and, and we don't put ourselves, but, but think about this for a minute. In real life, the human brain really isn't ready, isn't really wired to accept death on a large scale. Talk to our soldiers who come home. They take an emo emotional toll. It's difficult to see death on a large scale. Again, our military heroes know what that's like. It seems like it involves a complete reevaluation of life's purpose, priorities, and some of those questions that emerge. And I got a feeling that Abraham, as he faced, he just got back from a battle, and I'm sure he's processing all that took place there. There was the real possibility of dying on the battlefield. And maybe he comes back with this idea of, Boy, that, that could have been it. And we don't know, we weren't there, but there could have been some really close calls. Maybe came back even wounded. We're not sure of that. But like any normal person, I'm sure Abram returned from this battle. And in his mind's thinking, man, I could have lost it, and I don't have an error. 
And so maybe in his mind is, man, I, I better get this thing going because I, I, could lose, I could lose my life any day. I almost did. It was pretty close right there. So he comes back, and, and, and God sees his friend struggling. He graciously offers to help him. And he spoke straight to the matter, weighing heavily on Abram's heart. Look at the verse 1. It's just so rich. These things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And look what it said. Do not fear, Abram. Don't fear. By implication, Abram is anxious. By implication, there's fear. And again, I, I tied into this battle he just got back, and the reality is that was a close call. I'm not sure what awaits me here. So we're not sure all that, but clearly there's anxiety and fear, and God speaks into Abram's life and says, don't fear. What reassurance he gives. He says, don't fear because after all, I'm a shield to you. A shield. God is a shield, protects Abram as he protects you and me. From times of doubt, times of attack, he rescues us in time of danger, and Abram just experienced that. Now, you've got to believe he comes back thinking, man, I'm an old guy. I have a wife past menopause. We're both wondering how we're going to produce a son. I almost lost my life. God, we better kickstart this air talk, which you brought up not too long ago. You, you said it. I'm worried about it. And so as we see this interaction, it becomes interesting. Verse 2 through 3, Abram talks. He says, God, oh Lord God, which is a great way to address God. It's this idea of sovereign. He uses God's name Yahweh. It's like master God, master Lord. That's how he dresses him. What will thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? There's the implication Eliezer must have been born in that household somewhere. Um, it seems to be the consensus. Abram said, since thou hast given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So Abram's thought is, okay, I don't have my direct heir, but I got somebody who's born in the house. Custom said that that was okay in the extreme circumstances. So Abram's probably thinking, okay, God, I, I know what you said, but I think maybe I should help you. Right? Whenever you find yourself saying, I think I'll help God in his plan, it's usually a flag, not a good idea. He doesn't really need your help. He's doing quite fine. And, uh, but Abram's really struggling with this. And we can see how God interacts with him, gives him reassurance. And Abram, in essence, says, God, you keep promise this blessing, but I'm closer to death than ever. I have no blood heir to receive this covenant promise. And as he tries to make sense of this whole thing, he considers perhaps a chief of staff might be the heir that God was talking about. Now, verse 4, we can miss the emphatic language, but the Hebrew doesn't. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir. That's very emphatic. It's almost like a divine no. Stop that talk, Abram. That's not my plan. No. And he silences Abram in that sense, because now God takes the conversation right back to his original promise. This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. I got a feeling Abram's thinking, God, quit that talk, would you? You keep saying that. And there's no way it's going to happen. And, uh, but we don't see that response this time so much. As God continues to walk his friend through this, in this intimate conversation. 
And to drive home the point, God takes him outside, takes him on a field trip. He says, Abram, I want you to look up. Just look up. Abram looks up, neck craned, looking up. He says, you see all them stars, all them bright, bright, radiant stars? Look in the night sky and to illustrate the vastness of the nation that will bear Abram's DNA. He has Abram crane his neck to look straight up into the vastest, mysteriousness, immense universe. Because when he felt small surveying thousands of balls of fire spanning the heavens from horizon to horizon, then he grasped the Lord's point, which was, I am God, you can trust me. It would do us well to go out and look up in the stars often and look at the immensity of it. And I'm always floored when I look at creation and thought, how big is a God who speaks and that shows up? Matter of fact, how beautiful is a God who speaks in that kind of expanse is there? And God has Abram look up. And look up to remind Abram, you're small, but I'm God. I'm the one who's made this promise, Abram. You can trust me. Without hesitation, verse 6 says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Hebrew term for believe the Lord means he was certain. He trusted. Nothing inherent about Abram changed at all. Understand that. God declared him righteous because of his faith. God, acting as the supreme judge, applied all the rights and privileges of righteousness to Abram, despite Abram's own inability to be righteous. It's a beautiful picture. That's why... James quotes it in the New Testament as he talks about the significance of faith. Now look at the three words in verse 6. Believed, reckoned, and righteousness. Believed, again, has that whole idea of trust. Put your entire weight upon the truth. Reckoned has this idea of accounting term, credited to one's account. In other words, God credited Abraham's account with righteousness because of his faith. Abraham's account is empty. The banks, there's nothing there. God credited to his account righteousness. Abram could bring nothing to God. But God says, because of your faith, I'm going to put in your account righteousness now. Now we can have that intimate relationship, that right relationship, as the New Testament talks about. And righteousness speaks of God by nature is holy and righteous, and he demands righteousness when it talks about humanity coming into his presence. This moral perfection that God demands for all peoples beyond us. None of us here have it. None of us have the goods to come before God morally perfect. But by faith, the Bible tells us, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, he comes. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so we might become the righteousness of God. And by faith, we appropriate that in our life. And the New Testament uses a passage to prove that people receive salvation by God's grace through faith. And just like Abraham, all those who place their trust in the Lord God are counted as righteous. It's righteousness because of their faith. Now explains why Paul considered Abram in uh, Romans 4.11 as the spiritual father of those who have faith. Because we trace it back to verse 6. 
Abram believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Listen to Romans 4, 13 through 16. This is your next step throughout the week, but I want you to hear this. This is, this is incredible. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not based on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. You see, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. In other words, the only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break because we are impossible to keep. So the promise is received by faith. It's a free gift. So the question would come on the table is have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? In other words, do you, have you had faith, exercised faith in his perfect work which makes us righteous before God? There's no other way we can be made righteous before God but by trusting in what Christ did on the cross and the empty tomb. And if you've done that, the promise is eternal. You'll have an eternal relationship with God forever. You'll be an eternal friend of God forever because he declared it. But you can only do that through relationship with Christ. And if you haven't come to Christ, his promise is no good for you. I mean, you have no hope. You have no eternal assurance. The only thing you're left with is a life separated from God forever. That's the significance of our faith in the work of Christ. Have you heard his call to you? Scriptures tell us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Some of you may come here and say, you know what, I've, I've heard the gospel before. But I kind of thought, you know what, I'll wait. I'll wait maybe till I get my act together, or I'll wait maybe till I understand it a little bit more. You don't know if you're going to have a next time. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Respond to what God is saying to you. And what he's saying to you is if you want a right relationship with me, and the only way is to come before me righteously. And the only way to do that is through my son, Jesus Christ. And so if you've never made that decision, I invite you to do that today. By faith, come with a repentant heart, calling upon Christ to save you and to make you right before God. And so as we have this heart-to-heart conversation as I mentioned before, verse 9, God takes over. And he gives this prophetic word to him. And it's really in response to the question of verse 8. The question of verse 8, Abram says, Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? I believe it. How am I going to know? In other words, help me out here. I, I want to have this assurance. I believe you. I just want this assurance. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all, we've all know we believe Jesus and We've trusted him with our life, but there's those times where like, God, how am I going to know I'm going to get through this? How am I going to know it's going to be okay? How am I going to know the doctor doesn't have the last word? How, do I, how am I going to move on after the death of my spouse? How am I going to know I can make it, God? And there's times in our life we need assurance, if we're honest. Abram was no different, and he asked for it. And God gave him a prophetic word to, an, to answer him. It's interesting because he talks about something that might be a little puzzling to you and I. God says to him, by way of answering, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's not quite the answer I would have expected. I mean, wouldn't you have expected something maybe like, okay, here's, you know, here's what's going to happen and stuff, but no, bring me these things. Now, I, I'm convinced Abram had an idea what was coming. 
Then he brought all these to him. He cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Okay, this is getting gory, okay? Verse 11, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now today, we read this and we think that's weird, but today, if you, our agreements are preserved with ink on paper, validated with signatures, often stamped by a notary, upheld by the governments, but not so in the ancient culture. They didn't have paper. Clay tablets were few. The average people had to use other methods of recording a contract. And in the case of significant contracts, the parties took part in an elaborate ceremony, which we're seeing here, involving animal sacrifices. Now, Abram knew what to do. He knew to cut them in two. He kind of knew what was coming, it seems. Probably had seen similar covenants ratified in this way. Now, as we note in what God says to him, God gives him two promises in this text by way of prophetic word. One is the son's going to come from your own body. We've already seen that, and he repeats it. But there's a second promise, and that is a promise of inherited land, which we might not think much of, but I'll talk about why that's significant here in a minute. You see, Abram needed to know God's covenant with him and his descendants involved much more than a simple, albeit expensive, real estate transaction. His promise of land would eventually affect as we look, look back, and he actually know prophetically in the future, it's going to affect empires, it's going to shape history on a planetary scale. Consequently, the fulfillment would span many generations. And God gives Abram a glance of the future, of how his, his heir would become a nation. He describes 400 years of Hebrew captivity in Egypt in their great exodus. I mean, think about this. Abram's thinking, okay, this is my inheritance, and God says... But I want to be honest with you. It's not going to be easy. And he tells them up front, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a, some tough times here. But he calmed Abram's worry with the reassurance that he would die in peace at a ripe old age. Abram asked these questions. He's about 85 years old right now. We know from Genesis 25-7, he's going to live to be 175 years old. Just like God said to a ripe old age, the reality is he's kind of at midlife right now. He, he, he's called himself old, but God says, now you've got a few years to come yet. You're still a young buck. <laughs> and so Genesis 25 tells us really a fulfillment of God said. He had lots of time in his life to enjoy walking with God on this earth, to enjoy his friendship with God before the end of his life on earth. In verses 17 through 21, he gives a detailed symbolism of this covenant that's been lost to history. But archaeology really helps us understand some of this mystery as well. Normally, this ceremony that he talks about, of the cutting of two animals on each side, would take place uh, witnessed by other in people in each other's community, if they're from different communities. In other words, there would be people watching this. Kind of co-signers almost, people right there watching. And so what would happen is they'd cut these animals in two. People would say, let's say it's an agreement um, between Mark and I. We're going we're gonna to sell each other land or something like that. And, and Mark and I, okay, we agree on the terms. Okay, we're going to walk through this. It's, it's kind of like this uh, sacrificial pathway. And we're going to walk through it. Some from the community are watching this. We get on the other side, probably shake hands. It's a done deal. And what that communicates is may this happen to one of us if we break this. In other words, it's kind of serious. It's like we're not going to break it. This is a serious covenant. 
And that's what's going to happen. It took the two parties walking through who were in agreement with it. And that would ratify it. Again, it's kind of like us sitting down, signing the paper. We're both signing it. There's an agreement that takes place. And oftentimes you have either a banker or a lawyer or somebody else witnessing that. They, didn't, they did it differently. Let's put it that way. And, uh, but it had a little bit more bite to it <laughs> when you think about the ramifications of breaking it. So that's kind of what's going on here. And as an act of pure grace, we read in the text, verse 17, it came about when the sun had set, there was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. You can think of God's glory. As an act of pure grace, God walks the sacrificial pathway by himself, obligating himself to fulfill his unconditional covenant with Abram. The Lord then revealed a precise description of this covenant land, which should be expressed in terms that Abram would be able to understand. Abram would understand, okay, I'm getting another gift here. It's going to be this land. It's interesting, at the peak of its power under King Solomon, Israel really never claimed more than even half of the land by experience, but God promised this land would be yours one day. And we can be sure God always keeps his promise. Therefore, we can be certain that Israel will one day occupy every acre of his promise that God made. And so as we look through these specific promises, God says, I will give you land to your descendants. This land's going to stretch from the Nile to the Euphrates. And the tribes that are living in this land, they're going to disappear. And that's That might be the answer to your question. Why do these tribes, why does he mention these tribes at the end? You see it in verses 19 through 21. A, A, they're hard to pronounce. But B, you're like, why are they there? What God is saying is this land I'm showing you, although right now it's occupied by these people, this is going to be yours, and by implication it won't be theirs anymore. And the reason these names are mentioned is simply this. They don't exist anymore. God's already followed through on it. They don't exist. You can search, you're not going to find Canaanites, Canaanites, Jebusites, anywhere. They're gone. And we shouldn't be surprised because that was what God prophesied would happen. But the descendants of Abram, ah, they remain. They remain. You see, Jesus, the Jews had a literal promise. They'd have a literal physical recipients of a promise made 4,000 years ago. Despite the passage of time over 40 centuries through wars, despite every effort to wipe them out, the Jewish people remain. And the continued existence of the Jewish race is one of the strongest proofs of the truth of the Bible. How do you explain this little country that has endured all this other than God's hand upon their life and upon their land? The Jews are here because God promised Abram that he would make them a great nation. And God makes a promise, he keeps it. And again, the only explanation to Israel's survival is God's faithfulness to Abram's covenant. But as we kind of wrap this up, there's some things that I guess surface to me, and it's found in this conversation God has with Abram. Romans 5.1 so since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. In other words, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has satisfied all the requirements of righteousness, we can legitimately call God our friend. 
Matter of fact, Jesus even said, he says, I, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends if you obey what I command you. There's been a shift that takes place. We can use the word friend rightly or pretty lightly. We can say, well, that person's my friend, and we might have only really spent limited time with them. We might say, well, I know him, I knew him in high school, and he's a friend of mine or she's a friend of mine, but really, we don't know a lot intimately about him. We don't really know anything about him. I remember a story about a rabbi who was trying to uh, mentor a younger particular man, and the man came to him and kind of called him rabbi. He says, I love you, and, 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 and I just thank you so much. And, and the rabbi looked at him, and he says, you love me. He says, well, tell me what hurts me. The young man thought, what? He says, I don't know. He says, uh, how can you love me if you don't know what hurts me? It's a good point, isn't it? And when we came to this idea of friendship, we talk a little bit more depth, more intimate. And we can have this friendship with God through relationship with Christ. And it's not dependent that we call him friend, right? It's the dependent that he calls us friend. That's what really matters. That's the beauty the testimony of what it means to walk with him. You see, our divine friend, three points to take out of here. Our divine friend calls you and I from a life of fear. He calls us away from that. God knows you have fear. God knows you and I have anxieties. But our answer is found with them not just re rearranging our life or running. Our answer to them is found in a person, a relationship with God. Significant. God calls us from a life of fear. So don't be afraid to go to your divine friend. The Lord who says, fear not, I am your God, wants you and I to trust him and trust his unchanging character. And although circumstances are hard, they might weigh upon us, and they may change, some not for good. You see, it's never dark where God is, it's always light. And God says, I want to dispel those fears and I call you from that life of fear into a closer relationship with me. Do not fear. That's great assurance. It comes from a heart of a God who loves you. He calls you and I from a life of fear. Our divine friend also knows when to bless and when to delay. I'm sure Abram struggled with, why don't you just take care of this promise now? What's with all this waiting? What's with all this delay? And you might think that too. I did when I was my mid-20s, I'm like, man, I'd really like to get married and have kids. And it's like, God, where is she? And, uh, and, and I had to wait and, and, and wait longer than I would have preferred. But boy, did I hit the jackpot when I was 28, that's for sure. And uh, so I needed to wait. God's delay was good, really good. But in the, in the midst of it, it really wasn't. I didn't appreciate it. But God is our divine friend. He knows when to bless and he knows when to delay. His blessings are perfect. But not just his blessings being perfect, his timing is perfect. It's for our good, it's for his glory every time. We, let's be honest, we're short-sighted, we're impatient, we hate discomfort, waiting makes us anxious, consequently we wonder if God's forgotten us. Or did we even really hear God rightly? And usually when we attempt to get our own blessing through illegitimate means, it results in sin we commit. As our friend, God wants to bless us. But he knows that good things given at the wrong time can cause more harm than good. And Abram began to think about an alternative. Remember, he became kind of anxious. He says, hey, how about this, this guy, in my, this officer in my home? 
began to become anxious. And as we see God's timing, we see it's perfect. You need to understand your divine friend knows when to bless and, and when to delay. His timing's always perfect. And our future is as clear to God as our past is to us. We forget that. The Lord has your future blessings all planned out, ready to, believe, ready to be released when your spirit is mature enough to handle them. Some of you might have to endure some things. Some of you might have to endure some tests that he has prepared. But God, like a friend, waits with you. He knows when to bless or when to wait. The third thing our divine friend does is he calls you and I to trust him. While you're waiting, while you're walking, while you're planning, trust him. You see, friendships have, as a foundation, trust. And God, as divine friend, says, trust me, I got this. Got your back. That's what he was telling Abram. He said, trust me. Gave him a prophetic word. He said, here's what I got planned for you. And we know by scripture that there's some pretty cool things that await you and I for, for eternity. And God's given us a glimpse a little bit. And so you and I can trust him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, well-known passage. Harder to do than to read, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Our own understanding, we get that. Our own way to try to make things happen, we get that. But trust in the Lord and not on that, that's it's a little harder. But as God's, as a divine friend, God says, trust me. You can trust me. Not only is my plan perfect, so is my timing. God loves it when we trust him. Because when we trust him, we position ourselves to know more of God and experience more of his blessing when we trust him. And that's really what faith is. It's trusting God's plan. It's trusting God's timing. We do that by obeying one step at a time. That's evidence of your trust. You just do it one step at a time, one decision at a time, acting on one conviction at a time. Trust is shown step by step by step. Those vows you made, if you're married at the altar, you made some pretty wild vows. If you really think about it, what were you thinking? I mean, really, if, if we really stopped and, and looked at them vows, I mean, for good times and bad and for sickness and in health, and, I mean, till death do us, I mean, those are some pretty significant vows we made. But we didn't make the vows and then walk out of the church and be done with them. Isn't the reality we live each vow every day? Decision by decision is really living the vows out. Those wild promises made before God, we live them out step by step, decision by decision, day by day, action by action. That's how we live out the vows, and that's how we trust our God, step by step by step. You know, moving here, um, you meet a lot of people, and uh, you, come, you kind of slowly come to know people a little bit, and, 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 and Carrie Linder's it, some we interact with periodically and, and quite a lot as an elder. And, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if, if I call Carrie my friend. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm Carrie's friend. I might think I am, but what really matters is, you see, when Carrie talks to me and emails me a lot, he begins this message or says, my friend. That's when I know I'm his friend. And we, you, we might think we're God's friend, but until we come through Christ and he says, my friend, 
That's when we know. That's when we have great certainty and assurance when God calls us his friend. And the great news of the scripture, the great news of the gospel is when we come through the person of Jesus Christ into a relationship with God, he calls us his friend. If God calls you his friend, I want to encourage you this week, get alone with your friend. Spend some quality time with your heavenly father, your savior. Communicate with him. Bask in his presence and enjoy God, your Father, your friend. Let's pray. Father, I give you praise for truth too wonderful to comprehend. Lord, we know what it is to have friends. We're so grateful for them. At the same time, we recognize that our friends are imperfect, as we are. We recognize at times our friends, as good as they may want to, they'll let us down. We also recognize that our friends are in the same boat we are. They can't really deliver us from any of our fears. They can't really take us out of our situations or even make sense of them. While we value them, Lord, there's so much they can't do. And Lord, what I'm so grateful is that we look at the scriptures, we find you saying things that just blow our mind, that you would call us friend. How do we comprehend that? I'm not sure you want us to or even expect us to. But you want us to trust you. God, you want us to move out of a life of fear. God, you want us to live with a posture of totally depending upon you, knowing you care deeply for us. And that while our earthly friends may let us down, you'll never let us down. And while our earthly friends are not omnipotent and they can't be everywhere, you can. And so God, who else would we turn to? And my prayer for those in this room right now is, God, that they would leave here with a different perspective of you. Not as some distant deity, but as someone who's made it possible to come into an intimate relationship with you. If there's someone in this room who's not come to the Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Come to him. By faith with a repentant heart, trusting in what he did on the cross to pay for your sin and deliver you. Trust that, not your own efforts. And God has a promise that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and brought into an incredible relationship with the living God. And I pray if you haven't done that, you do that this morning. And so God, as we leave this place, might you continue to speak into our life might this week find us sitting at your feet, listening to you, praising you, Lord, hearing your truth. God, because we need that. And so we worship you this morning. We thank you for your word. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.